Well, I've been joking with folks, we've got to find a way, we've got to coin a term for this period between Christmas and New Year's, because if you say Merry Christmas, it's already done and gone, and it's not quite New Year's, so Merry whatever this is, getting ready for that. I hope you're ready. It sounds so strange. I don't know if I'm the only one that thinks this, to say 2020. Like, I'm used to using that in a phrase, hindsight is 2020. Well, not anymore. It's not just a phrase or a television show old people watch. It's now reality. You know, it's here. And um, I remember, this is going to date me a little bit. Anybody remember Y2K? That was two decades ago. Man, I'm old. Um, it's kind of funny how that happens. Listen, whether, whether you want it to be or not, Eric, are you saying you weren't born yet in, in Y2K? Yeah, there you go. Oh, man. <clears throat> Whether you want it, want it to be or not, time, time doesn't stop for anybody, right? Like, um, you could pick that ideal age that you could be, you know, 25 forever, 35 forever. And it's funny, whatever that age is you want to be forever gets older as you get older. You're like, man, if I could just be 10 years younger, it would be a great thing. Well, we are um, coming off the Christmas season, and uh, you're in that kind of blissful seri- season of life where you have... Um, you have shown love to your loved ones with gifts and with togetherness and probably too much food, and you actually have the opportunity right now to continue to enjoy that because your credit card bills have not come due yet. And so you don't have the sticker shock of Christmas kicking in, and uh, that's a good thing. Uh, Mike, Caleb, can I pick on you here for a second? No? No? This is hyperbole, but this is what you love whenever, whenever, you, have, um, whenever you buy a gift. Um, I, I won't mention the gift, but... Uh, there are particular gifts that you get someone, and, and you remember this. If you can remember back to when you were a kid, there was something you got at one particular Christmas that became your favorite gift, and it like completely overshadowed the other gifts that you have, so much so that perhaps you stopped eating, sleeping, and bathing to enjoy that gift for you know the, those first uh, couple of days. And that's really what you want to see as a parent. You, you're, you, you have not braved the um, Black Friday crowds you have not perhaps unwisely spent more money than you should have for people to get their gift and go, meh, meh. If, if you're going to go to the trouble of investing your time and your finances to do something for someone, you want them to enjoy it. And here's, here's my concern going into 2020. Some of us, maybe myself included, are chronically unprepared for 2020 because we, we have not processed, in a God-centered way, 2019. There are some ways that this is true. 2019 may have been the most difficult year of my life for a variety of different issues. Um, life's not easy. Anybody think life's easy? It's not. There's reversals. There's uh, just unfortunate things, people that you say goodbye to. Um, situations that don't turn out exactly the way that you want to. And yet, if we don't have uh, the process of looking at God's goodness and seeing it in 2019, as Christians, we're not prepared for New Year's Day. And so today, I'm taking what is a traditional kind of Christmas passage. Um, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. It's Mary's Magnificat. It's Mary's song of praise when she spends time with um, Elizabeth. And they, they, they both happen to be pregnant. And um, I think there are some words here of encouragement for us as we say goodbye to 2019 and prepare for 2020. How do we do so faithfully? 
The Bible says that whatever we put our hands to, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, to do it all to the glory of God. And I don't think you have to be a person who makes copious New Year's resolutions to do New Year's to the glory of God, but you would be remiss if... um, In the Old Testament, the Shema, uh, kind of the foundational Old Testament statement about the oneness of God, tells us to hear, basically to listen. Hear, Israel, listen. We're so overcome with a cornucopia of advertisement and busyness and schedule details that we don't have the opportunity to listen anymore. It's like our ears are perpetually blocked from listening to what God is doing and has done that we... um, We don't have the opportunity to praise Him for how He has been faithful in our past. And listen, if I buy you a gift and it ends up that you wrap it up and you give it away as a white white elephant gift, guess what? You ain't getting a gift next year. Why would I give you something, from my perspective, precious if you don't appreciate it? And my fear is, some of you here, um, and I don't know if you would admit this, so don't raise your hand. Some of you are perpetually the glass is half empty people, okay? Do you know who you are? I hope so. Some of you are glasses half empty. Some of you are glasses half full. You're the ones that are smiling back at me as we're talking about this because you're just more optimistic the way that you approach life. And my fear is that if we perpetually live on the cynical side of life, there are all kinds of things that God has done that maybe everybody else recognizes but you. And that's a challenge. You're familiar with this story. Um, Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 are very interesting. It's, it's kind of the quintessential Christmas passage. And so you have a number of things that happen in Luke, Luke chapter 1. Luke introduces his gospel and says that he's going to lay this out kind of in a consecutive fashion for uh, some, some, some ruler, this most excellent Theophilus, uh, which if you're having a baby, you know, that Theophilus... It's not, it's a rather unique name. You might want to put that in your list of names for little ones, little Theo. Um, but almost immediately in Luke chapter 1, the story is told of Jesus' advent, not by talking about Jesus, but by talking about John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist has a mom and a dad, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And Zacharias happens to be a priest, and as he is um, chosen by allotment, because there's thousands of priests, but he is chosen, his name is pulled out of a hat, so to speak, to actually perform the priestly service in the temple. There are some priests that would never get their name drawn to do this. So it was a really fortunate opportunity for him to be able to do this. When he goes into uh, the temple to perform his sacrifices, um, a guy that we know as Gabriel shows up. Gabriel doesn't just show up for Mary. Gabriel shows up for Zacharias as well. To tell Zacharias that while Elizabeth is old and past the normal um, um, window for childbearing, she is about to be with child, and this child would be the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be John the Baptist. Zechariah unwisely questions the angel to get some kind of confirming sign about how do I know that this is going to be. And Gabriel says, I'll tell you how you can know it's going to be. You're going to be mute because you didn't believe me until the child is born. And Zechariah immediately doesn't, he loses the ability to communicate verbally. Um, later on in that chapter, Gabriel's a busy man. Gabriel shows up to a virgin named Mary to tell her, uh, listen, here's what's going to happen. You have been highly favored by the Lord. Uh, the Lord is going to cause you to become pregnant uh, outside of the normal circumstances of um, what causes childbearing. In both of these cases, you have miraculous uh, pregnancies. Elizabeth, because she was well past the childbearing years. Uh, Mary, because she was not in a marriage relationship 
uh, where this would normally occur. And so you have two miraculous conceptions. And uh, it says that as soon as Gabriel had departed from Mary, that Mary went um, from verse 38. She says, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be according uh, to your word. And the angel departed from her. Verse 39, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah to go visit Zechariah and Elizabeth. We don't know how far into her pregnancy she is, but according to just the conjunction between verse 38 and verse 39, it seems to be Gabriel announces, and maybe a small period of time passes, and, and Mary decides to get out of town. Now, why does she decide to get out of town? Because she is pregnant and she is not married. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. Um, maybe she had planned this trip to go see Elizabeth for a really long time. But there is something related to the pregnancy and maybe what she has heard about Elizabeth's pregnancy that causes them to want to spend time together. And here's what's amazing. I hope, I hope every single one of you has a friend like this. There are great things that come out of the time that Elizabeth and Mary spend together. As a matter of fact, Mary writes this song, this poem that we're going to look at in verses 46 through 55, that is a beautiful recounting of God's faithfulness, His, His truthfulness to His promise, His incredible love and mercy. And that is brought to fruition because she has a faithful friend that Iron sharpens iron, and they encourage each other. It's, it's fascinating because it says that when Mary greets Elizabeth and is walking into Elizabeth's house, that John the Baptist, in utero, jumps up and starts celebrating because he recognizes that his Lord is there. I don't know how you cannot be pro-life, especially when you see something as clear as this, that there is personality and there is worship in the womb. Listen, it'd be great if we had worship in our churches. There's worship in wombs happening here. What an amazing thing. I can't think of a better tabernacle for God to be worshipped than, than the womb of a mother. It's an incredible thing. And, and through this interaction um, and through this worship, Mary just kind of uh, extemporaneously busts out into a song. And it's beautiful. It may not sound like a song that you're going to hear um, Taylor Swift sing on the radio. It's Hebrew poetry. And it follows the typical um, Thanksgiving psalm that Hebrew poetry does. Someone is really excited about God's blessings. And so they state that, and then they state the reasons why they are so grateful for things happening. Now, I'll mention this as a side note, because um, this is just one of the frustrating things. It's kind of like nativity scenes. You guys know the wise men were not there, okay? So um, take your wise men, put them in the hallway. You can ha don't get rid of your wise men. Just put them somewhere else because it was, it was a while before they got there. Uh, but what really bothers me is what we do with angels. We've turned the angels into, you know, the theological equivalent of My Little Pony. Um, you know, we've made them cute and we've made them cuddly. And yet, here's the thing. There, there are some really perverse ways that we have taken all of Christian theology and made it about me. Because instead of making angels herald of God's invasion into our time and space, we make angels guard, guardian angels. That if you're driving too fast, you know, I don't know what happens when you get a speeding ticket. Was your, you know, was your guardian angel on a smoke break or something like that? You know, what, what happens at that point? But we, we have taken these, these angels that are magnificent beings and we have dumbed them down into like personal bodyguards, personal valets. 
And here's the thing. In Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, there are angels everywhere. Gabriel shows up to Zacharias, shows up to Mary. You've got the single angel that surprises the, the mess out of the shepherds. And then you have an entire legion of angels that are singing. And here's the point. Um, not to bust your bubble about your personal little guardian angel, your, your pet little angel. But the point is that angels show up where Jesus is proclaimed. So if you are proclaiming Jesus by the way that you drive, then claim your guardian angel. But if you've turned it into a, a pet genie in a bottle, man, that's not what angels are about. So enough for the little side rant there. Um, angels show up where Jesus is exalted. But there's, we're going to read the passage, and then I'm going to ask three kind of applicational questions to make you think about whether you are ready for 2020 by properly celebrating 2019. Here's, here's what the song says. Mary said this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty-handed. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. First application question I have for you is, do you have faithful eyes to see? Do you have faithful eyes? eyes to see. Yes, I am asking you, how good is your vision? But this is not simply an issue of going to the eye doctor and seeing how, how small of a line you're able to read. I'm talking about your, your spiritual vision. Can you see what God is doing? And I want you to understand very clearly what is going on with Mary. In the very first verse, she says, "My." the song is called the Magnificat in Latin because the word magnify is uh, from, from that verb form in Latin. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The fact that she's able to put together these verses, this, um, this song, this poem, means that her mind, her mouth, and by her own admission, her soul and her spirit, and in, it is an entire body experience for her to praise God for what He has done. Now listen, some of you, if somebody starts doing this when the worship song's being played, you like start breaking out in hives, okay? And that's not even a full body experience. That's a right hand experience. I don't know in worship if you raise your right hand or your left hand, if that means different things. Uh, the point here is for Mary, it was everything that was her was involved in praising God for what she is seeing and has seen Him do. Her entire being is caught up in praise to God. And so two questions that are one sentence, but one, what, two, two questions. When we talk about having eyes to see, do you have eyes to see God's greatness? That's, that's one question. His greatness manifested to you personally. Do you have eyes to see God's greatness, not just as an abstract thing, but manifested to you personally? Let's start with God's greatness. Mary uses a variety of titles to refer to God. In verse 46, she calls Him the Lord. In verse 47, she calls Him God, my Savior. 
In verse 49, he is called mighty, he is called holy, and in verse 50, he is called the merciful one. Uh, I find it interesting that Mary refers to Jesus as my Savior, which indicates that Mary is special, but she's not sinless. She didn't say the Savior of the world, she says my Savior. She makes it personal. Mary is among those who are redeemed, not above those who are redeemed. And so if you have grown up with Roman Catholic teaching about the perpetual sinlessness of Mary, by Mary's own testimony, she calls Jesus her own Savior. She's in need of salvation, but she sees this mighty God behind this incarnation event that is happening. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices. He has looked on my humility. And from now on, everyone will call me blessed because he has done great things for me. In verses 48 and 49, she provides the foundation for her praise. Because of him looking upon someone who is so humble, uh, she will now be referred to in a special way because she is the only one that plays this uh, unique and non-repeatable role in all of human history. Uh, I love the way that this reinforces her uniqueness while not denying her humanity. She is a human being just like you and me, and she makes this very personal. She recognizes that there's a great gap between her feeble holiness and God's great holiness. Here's what's awesome. When we talk about having eyes to see, faithful eyes to see, I don't doubt that you have eyes to see. What I I question is whether you have faithful eyes to see. If, as this passage seems to indicate, Mary goes to spend time with Elizabeth immediately after um, Gabriel's announcement, I tend to think, the Scripture doesn't say this, so let me step away from the Bible, The Scripture doesn't say this. I tend to think that once she started to have the little baby bump, that's when she went. Now it became obvious, you can't hide it, and everybody in town is talking about her. That's not what the Scripture says. It says the angel visits, and then the very next verse, she went in haste, which means in a hurry, which means maybe right after the announcement, she goes to see Elizabeth. So when she says, God has done great things for me, And all generations will call me blessed because he's done mighty things for me. Apart from her bearing Christ, you would not know Mary's name. She's a nobody. She's a simple peasant girl who is so easy to overlook that she thought maybe God does too. She's simple. She's humble. And yet she says, he has done great things for me. Not that she has wealth or riches or fame, or fortune. She has very little. But when she says that he's done great things for me now, the thing that she is referring to is perhaps microscopic in its origin. I mean, I I don't know. Was Christ's gestation super normal? Was it any faster? I really don't know. Listen, I think every birth mother would want gestation to happen a little bit faster, you know. It can be a challenge. There's all kinds of weird things that happen to your body. But the point here is that Mary has such faithful eyes that her faith can even see small things. And my fear is, if God doesn't, like, turn the sky pink for you tonight and, you know, write something in the heavens, that you're perpetually going to miss all the small things that He does. Here's the challenge, man. From, from a, a worship standpoint, from a theological standpoint, 
We know in our minds that God is alive and well and working in the world. But then there's this disjunction between affirming something rationally, but then experientially seeing it. And the issue may not be whether God is working. Or, no, no, I, I believe God's fully alive and well and working as He wishes. The question is whether we've allowed our circumstances to blind out those things that He does. Can your faith rejoice in small things? Or does it only need to be stuff that's above the fold in big, bold letters on Fox News? You celebrate that, but you don't celebrate the little stories at the bottom. Listen, when your faith can see small things, guess what happens? You've got 10,000 reasons more to praise God than the person who only celebrates him for the two or three big things that he's done. So what's he done? Let's just get stupid simple, okay? Did y'all wake up this morning? I know y'all are awake. The kids on their phone up there, I'm not so sure that they're awake. Uh, I know you're awake, okay? Are you healthy? I hear a few sniffles coming from over here. Maybe, maybe not all of us. But are you, are you feeling well? That's yeah, something to praise God for. How's your family doing? Did you, did you spend time with family or close friends, dear friends this holiday season? I think uh, beyond the ones that I know, there are probably some people that have faced some really unfortunate circumstances. Some of you maybe have even been in the hospital over the last week. Are you glad to be out? Why do we say God's not at work when, when, when our orthodoxy demands us to say it, but our spirit refuses to rejoice? There's, there's something very pagan, even among Christians, that refuses to acknowledge the quaint and quiet ways that God is at work all around us. And listen, uh, please, please understand, I'm preaching to the choir. Um, I'm tempted to underline and bold and highlight the big things and I'm tempted to massively underestimate the small things. But you know what? I want my worship to be better than that. I think that God is doing more than I can possibly even perceive. Even if I was super attentive to all the things that I could possibly be attentive to, I would still miss it, even if I was being as conscientious as I could possibly be. Can your faith see small things? You'll have more to praise God for. Number two, do your values reflect heaven or hell? Man, that's a really blunt way to put it. But the Bible says very clearly that the world is trying to conform us to its image and that if you are not vigilant, part of the reason you will have problems focusing on what God has done is because your value system is the world's value system, not heaven's. So do your value systems reflect heaven or do they reflect hell? In verses 50 through 53, Mary does something that is so precious and proves in some ways how she's not like us. Because if you're like me, if God is good to me, then I don't really care what he's doing or not doing for you. Everything's good in my world. Have you ever experienced that temptation? That like, listen, the rest of the world can, you know, if everything's good with me, then everything's all right. We are so selfish. And the most spiritual of us are far more self-centered than we would ever care to honestly admit. It is endemic to us. And yet Mary does something awesome. While in verses 46 through 49, she is praising God for what he has done for her personally, when, he begin, when she begins to talk about value systems and how God has reversed those value systems, she is now turning her eyes from looking at herself to looking at what God is doing in the world. And she's seeing God doing things for other people. She is not so self-focused that she can't see what God is doing around her, 
for other people. And so she praises his character. God is not just mighty and holy. He is also merciful. Listen to how the scriptures say this. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. And here's how he's shown strength. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty-handed. He has completely reversed the values of this world to do something new. It says that he shows mercy to those who fear him. And I don't know if you sense this. Uh, This is another way in which I feel old. It's not just Y2K. It's it's that, um, man, I don't know how to put this into words. Um, But our, our society and our culture has just become blatantly disrespectful. Am I crazy? Like there, and listen, I think that this is a good thing. I'm not wearing a suit this morning. That is offensive to some people. You guys get that? Okay, it's offensive to some people because Sunday morning you need to be dressed up. There is a casualness to our society that I think is a thing to be celebrated. If you don't have a suit, you are welcome to come worship with us. If you don't have what a particular generation says should be your Sunday best, we want you to bring your best and we'll be happy with that. Because God looks at the heart instead of the outward appearance. But there is a casualness to our society that hasn't just um, maybe encouraged us to dress down a little bit, uh, maybe be a bit more humble, maybe not so ostentatious. There is a casualness to um, just our attitudes with how we treat others. Very little respect anymore. And, And I just wonder if we watch how we attack people online, if we watch how we gossip about others, if we we watch how we talk in not positive ways. And that's how we treat each other every day on the day-to-day. How can we possibly say that we have fear of God? If we've lost respect for people made in God's image, to some degree we've lost respect for God himself. And what does it mean to fear the Lord? It doesn't mean that you quake in your your boots. It means that you reverently and humbly seek to please him by obeying him. That's what the fear of the Lord is. Fear of the Lord doesn't have anything to do with like, you know, being afraid that God's going to punish you. No, it's a desire. You fear him in the sense that you love him so much and want to obey him so consistently that you bring him joy and that you're concerned about not pleasing him. That's what the fear of the Lord is. And here's the deal. When we talk about having eyes to see, people who see God do two things. They fear God and they love mercy because God loves mercy. A lot of times when we hear the word mercy, I think particularly guys, when we hear that somebody's merciful, we immediately think that they're weak. Oh, you know, Joel's got mercy. Joel had mercy. You're like, weak. Turn your man card in, you know. We've got to trim the corn on the man card. You're supposed to be, you know, fearsome. You're supposed to be fierce. You're supposed to be a warrior. When we hear merciful, we see weak. But his mercy is also joined to incredible strength. He has put the proud in their place. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to try to put a proud man in their place. You ever tried to do that? It is a losing proposition because uh, they've spent a lifetime becoming pompous and you think in five minutes you're going to put them in their place, you better get, better, you better get bigger boxing gloves because you're not going to undo in a five-minute conversation what's taken them 50 years to build up this pride and this ego. And yet God is strong enough that he says he abases them, not just in their lofty positions and bully pulpits that they hold, he has abased them in the thoughts of their heart. 
He has convicted them. He has humiliated them in one sense. He is not only merciful, he is strong and mighty, and he, un, he undoes the, I think this is a word, the pomposity of the proud. I can't do that. I can't do that. I cannot make you unproud. I can provide accountability. Your friends, your family uh, can ask you know, serious questions, but only God can produce humility in your heart. I love the way that they talk about this great reversal. He has scattered the proud, but he's helped the servants. He has brought rulers low, but he has exalted the humble. He has sent away the rich empty-handed, but he has filled the hungry. People left to themselves, according to the spirit of this world, will use what they have for their own advancement. This is mine. It's not yours. And this is why I think hell will be so unbearable. You will be accompanied for all of eternity by other people whose selfishness will be fully unrestrained. You will be like the kid who has a truck full of toys that doesn't want to share any one of them because they're his. And you will spend eternity with those kind of people and you will be that yourself. I can't think of a worse place to be. The Christian, on the other hand, uses what God gives them for the advancement of his kingdom, not for their own pleasure purposes. So the question comes to us, how are you using what God has entrusted to you? If we're talking about values, whether your values uh, reflect heaven or hell, you will use what God has entrusted you for the glory of God and the good of people, not simply for your own self-advancement. Number three, and finally, not only do you have faithful eyes to see, not only what, what does your value system look like, does it look like God's? Does it look like the world's? But number three, do you know God's integrity? Do you know God's integrity? In verse 54 and 55, Mary says this, not just what God has done for me, not just what God has done for others, but what God has done for his people. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God has made a promise. God has kept that promise. And we are so tempted to make everything in this world, the church, the gospel, the Bible, all about us. And if I could, if I could pop this balloon before Wednesday gets here to say that your life is not about you. It's not. The gospel is not about you. The church is not about you. Last time I checked, your name isn't in the... Well, Joel, yours is. Um, Caleb, I think yours is too. Um, but the rest of you, most of your names are not in the Bible. And it's certainly not you that they're referring to. It is about Christ and God's plan to redeem. It's about God and His plan, His gospel, and His priorities. And here's the point. It took a long time to get there. But the promise that God had made centuries, millennia prior. God was faithful to that promise to give us Jesus. It says, He has helped His servant Israel. How? By the little baby that's in Mary's womb. Maybe not even noticeable. Certainly not external. It's all internal right now. And yet she knows her eyes are able to see with faith these small and microscopic things that God is doing and to say, God has delivered on his promise with this baby in my belly that nobody even knows that I have yet. And even when they do, they're not going to see it as God doing something. They're going to see me as a bad girl. 
who's done something that I should not have done. She's going to be maligned even though she is the uh, bearer of the Savior of the world. Again, listen, just because God's will is hard doesn't mean that it's, it's not God's will. Mary faced, uh, listen, you know how church people are. Mary faced incredible pressure when she said, yeah, I'm telling you, this angel showed up in my bedroom one night and told me, well, sure, Mary, yeah, we'll believe your story. We'll believe your story. Here's the question. How has God made us this promise? We'll run through the scriptures real quick. If you're, if you're a Bible student and you like to run down Old Testament prophecies, I'm going to give you five or six of them here. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, uh, God is passing out curses to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent. And to the serpent, he says, listen, serpent, you may strike the heel of Mary's seed, child down the road, but he will crush your head. In Genesis chapter 3, three chapters into the book, God is making a prophecy about the coming of Christ. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 3 through 7, God makes a promise to Abraham that his progeny will be like the sands of the sea, like the stars of the heaven, and that every family on the face of the earth will be blessed through the covenant that God is establishing with Abraham. In Genesis 26, 24, God reestablishes that covenant, not with Abraham because now he is dead, but with Abraham's seed, Isaac. In Genesis 28, verses 12 through 15, Jacob sees the ladder and the angels ascending and descending, and God reiterates the covenant again to Jacob. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19, Moses is about to die, and he is wondering what will happen with the people that he has led uh, for so long through so much difficult things, so many difficult things. And God says, I will raise up another like you who will be a true Moses, who will give the law accurately, who will not just teach about sacrifices, but will be a sacrifice himself. A true prophet will arise from among you. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, we're told that David was a great king and that David's son would do even greater things than David himself had, but that the prophecy that there would be one descended from David's lineage who would sit on his throne forever was not something that could be fulfilled by David or by Solomon, but was a prediction that Joseph, when the census was taken, would have to travel to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. God's been faithful from Moses to the prophets, to the kings, back to the prophets, to promise and to deliver Christ for us. So the question this morning, in this weird time between Christmas and New Year's, is which God do you see? It's multiple choice here. Some of you could settle for the God of deism, that God kind of got everything spinning and then just kind of left this world to the madness, and he's not involved at all in our day-to-day life. Some of you might see the God that Mary saw, that one who is holy and righteous, who is eternally faithful, yet so involved in our lives that he challenges the values of our world system. Or you could see the God from the North Pole who gives out baubles that will never satisfy your soul. You can see God as a genie in the bottle, there to serve you and your interests, but again, will be a God who never truly satisfies. If you want God to be central in your life, like, it, like he was for Mary, what can you do? Four quick applications. Number one, commit yourself to humble service. Commit yourself to humble service. Listen, the angel showed up and told Mary what was about to happen, and Mary said, let it be done to me according to your word. She could have said no. She could have said no. 
But because she was humble, she has occupied a non-repeatable office in the history of the church. No one will ever do that again. And that doesn't mean when Scott Crouch comes to you and asks you to change diapers in the nursery that you're going to likewise fulfill a unique and non-repeatable historical event in the life of the church. But some of the most miserable people that I know are people that are so self-focused that they don't have anything to give anyone else. They're not serving. And for a Christian to not be serving has got to be a curse, has got to be a terrible affliction. Service puts you in a pathway of blessings that you forfeit if you don't. And Mary exemplifies this. She says, all right, God, you want to use my body and make me an object of derision to everybody that I know. Okay. Jesus exemplifies it even better. Who came not to serve, but to be served and to pour his life out as a ransom for many. Number two, see the relationship between holiness and mercy. I don't, I don't know if, you're, if, if you'll get this, okay? Holiness needs to be a, a very paramount concern for the Christian. And sometimes, sometimes um, we're so concerned about holiness that we want to back away from, from people and not be merciful. Because if I, get, if I hang out with them, some of the contagion that is on them might get on me, and now my holiness ain't so good anymore. Sometimes we make a divorce between holiness and mercy. Like, I can be holy without being merciful. That didn't seem to be a problem for Jesus, who never sinned, yet had a reputation of hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and women of ill repute, um, who was accused of being a drunkard and a friend of sinners, and yet was righteous all throughout. See the relationship between holiness and mercy. Maybe you're given towards the holiness side of things. Again, glass half full, glass half empty. If, if holiness isn't your challenge, I can almost guarantee you that mercy is. And if mercy is not your challenge, then probably holiness is. So find the way to, that these work out. Never allow your holiness to descend into a realm of self-righteousness that makes it impossible for you to serve people. That's a problem. Uh, those people get what they deserve. You know, if they would work, if they would do whatever, now I'm not going to do anything for them. The truth is that true spiritual holiness always oozes into practical righteousness. There's going to be a way that you serve. So what are you doing? Who are you serving? Number three, our values need to be turned upside down. We need to mirror God's character. And if God always keeps his word, it's probably a good idea for us to do that too. He says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Say it and mean it. Finally, number four, I find it amazing that Mary in this really kind of desperate situation that she is in. It's, it's crazy. It is blessed, but it is desperate because people are mean. When Mary is squeezed by life's circumstances, you know what comes out of Mary? Whatever's in Mary. And in this passage, you have nine references to Old Testament scriptures. What came out of Mary when she was pressed by life was God's word. And I wonder, when, when you get into a difficult situation, and life's circumstances put the clamps on you, does despair come out? Because if it does, it's because despair is in. Does Scripture come out? If it does, it's because Scripture is in. 
My point is this, hiding God's word in your heart is the best way to always keep Jesus close. Hiding his word in your heart. What comes out of you when you get squeezed? You have been, whether you realize it or not, the recipient of grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. Are you too busy? Are you too busy to stop and say thanks? Because if you are, you're not prepared for whatever he's got for you in 2020. If you can't have faithful eyes to see the small things in life, I'll use the word pity because there are all kinds of ways that God is alive and well and working in this world. That there was a time when your love for Christ was so red hot and passionate that you could see, it's almost like you had spiritual decoder vision. You could see God at work in all kinds of ways. It's amazing. I had a conversation with a man this morning who said, you know what? Three months ago, four months ago, I really felt like I missed out on something that God had for me. But something has come up just recently that has really got me so excited that I can see that maybe the reason I didn't get this opportunity is because this opportunity was waiting for me and I just couldn't see it yet. You know what that is? That's spiritual vision. They can look and see how things that maybe didn't happen exactly the way you wanted to brings about glory to God and goodness for his people. So today, before we go into 2020, would you take a moment and just reflect on what God has done for you? And if um, the circumstances of your life make that a hard task, God has forgiven your sins. And he has called you to be a child or a daughter of the one true king. And he has given his Holy Spirit to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord so that you no longer have to live the old busted and broken way that you live. You now have the opportunity to live the way that God wants you to live. It says that he came that we might have joy and have it to the full. I want some of that. And I hope you do too. Father, thank you for this day. We ask right now as we sing and as we worship in response to this word, that you would allow your spirit to penetrate our hearts and our souls and our spirit. Uh, we pray that you would allow us to worship like Mary, that you would allow us to have eyes that see you at work, that have values that are consistent with your gospel, that you would um, encourage us to just be people of integrity, not because we earn our way into heaven, but because we want to be different people who testify to your glory and goodness. Father, it's impossible for us to do I can't do it, uh, none of us can do it, but your spirit can. And we ask for you to work your pleasure in our lives, in Jesus' name, amen.